Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Chinese Foreign Ministry says the G20 failed to reach a consensus on the climate crisis due to the introduction of geopolitical issues by certain countries. Chinese firms continue to dominate this year's Fortune Global 500. U.S.-based chipmaker AMD considers making a specific AI chip for China to comply with export controls. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China has expressed regret at the G20 environment and climate ministers' meeting failed to adopt a communique. The Chinese foreign ministry said the meeting has achieved positive and balanced results, but the failure to adopt a communique is due to the introduction of geopolitical issues by certain countries. The ministry added that China didn't obstruct the meeting in reaching a consensus on key issues such as cutting emissions, controlling the usage of fossil fuels and boosting the use of renewable energy. The ministry also urged developed nations to fulfill their commitments, provide climate funding, and avoid actions that could hinder global climate response. So to delve into this, joining us on the line is Professor Yao Shujie from Chongqing University. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm uh, how do you interpret China's response to the accusation of backing away from commitments at the G20 Environment and Climate Ministers' meeting? Um, China is the big country and also the largest developing nation, which is probably the, the biggest emission in the world. So whatever happened in the climate meeting, there's always some discussion uh, surrounding China. Mm-hmm. I think um, due to some political uh, issue in the meeting, especially uh, there's imbalances between the industrialized or the developed nation and the developing countries. Uh, there are some unfairness, uh, you know, in the atmosphere and also some imposition of conditions, which are against some country in favor of the rich nations. So this is um, a, a very sensitive. Uh, you know, so geopolitical issues. And in the end, although the discussion of the G7, uh, you know, uh, environmental ministries are successful, uh, but it doesn't come to the consensus that they will be a unified, uh, you know, communicate, communicate issue to the outside world, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pity, you know, a pity for not only for China, but also for the rest of the world, because the climate issue is becoming so important. It's highly complicated, though. Uh, it does require a, a consensus and multilateral, uh, multidimensional cooperation between uh, the rich and the developing nations, and also be, between the resource rich and the resource poor countries uh, together. So, uh, for some countries, there. Yeah, they are arguing for a differential treatment of the condition, but some some other countries, they are in a better condition. They try to impose a very strict restriction, which could have some potential damage on economic development for some countries. And this is why it is a very you know, difficult situation, and it's very unfortunate. Uh, it, it doesn't come to a, a final, you know, unified conclusion in the end. Mm-hmm. Professor Yao, China's foreign ministry emphasized China is actively promoting global climate governance. Can you elaborate on some specific measures and initiatives taken by China in this regard? Yeah, China um, has actually have been promoting uh, you know, green development for many decades, not mm-hmm. just now. As I mentioned, because China is the biggest manufacturer in the world and it produced probably the largest amount of emissions. But as you can see over the last decade, uh, China's total uh, emissions have been uh, fairly stabilized, although the effort to reduce in absolute terms of the carbon emissions remains a fairly difficult challenge because on the one hand, the, the, the country has to maintain a certain level of 
economic development. On the other hand, it has to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels and also reduce the energy intensity. Um, but gradually, um, I think China has done quite a lot in terms of setting the target. For example, like the President Xi Jinping, he already announced the, the so-called dual uh, carbon target by the year 2030. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it aimed to peak in terms of the total uh, emission, and by the 2060, it will become carbon natural. That means that the emission and also uh, you know, the digestion of carbon from the atmosphere will be equal to each other, so there will be zero uh, carbon emissions. In order to do so, uh, a number of measures have to be taken. First of all, uh, China is developing rapidly the renewable energy, for mm-hmm. example, like wind power, solar power, and nuclear power, as you see. This year, the State Council already announced to uh, you know, build four nuclear stations along the coast. And also, China is the biggest producer of solar power and wind power as well as hydropower, uh, which are, are very important to reduce the dependence on coal, uh, fire, filing, uh, you know, electricity uh, generation uh, factories, which have demand a, a very important source of uh, you know, carbon dioxide emissions. The other method that China is doing is through the so-called innovation and technological progress by making sure that the power generation uh, station, they use the latest latest technology so that for the generation of each unit of electricity, the the consumption of oil of coal could be reduced to a minimum and steadily decline. So Mm -hmm. these kinds of measures um, are from the supply side. Uh, from the digesting side, the carbon capture uh, mechanism, China have uh, promoted the planting of trees, mm. uh, grass, and reduced the uh, you know desertification of the desert areas in Xinjiang, in Qinghai, and other areas. So you can see that over the past two decades, China has done a lot to increase the coverage of forestry mm. and, and green space. And the, the you know the percentage of the you know the green area as the total area of the country's territory have been increased steadily. For example, you know in Chongqing City, which I'm more familiar with, mm-hmm. is that uh, five years ago the coverage was only forty-seven uh, percent, and now it's fifty-three percent. Uh, for a large metropolitan city with an area of eighty thousand square kilometers which is quite phenomenal. And mm-hmm. if you go to Xinjiang, Qinghai, and also in, in normal Mongolia, you can see, I just went to uh, you know, Mongolia, you can see the grassland has so green, like it covers almost every piece of the mountain. Uh, you can see the, um, the, the quality of the environment is much, much better than 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you see now uh, little, you know, you know, sandstorms in Beijing and the surrounding area. Also, recently we see some heavy rainfall to mm-hmm. <laughs> other yes. Yeah. Actually, China contributed to a quarter of world's newly added green areas since 2000. But, Professor, differences between developed and developing countries regarding emission reduction targets was again being brought up this time. So what are your views on the fairness and feasibility of imposing eco-emission reduction goals on developing nations? Well, this is the utterly unfair uh, condition imposed by the developed nations, which have uh, you know, polluted the globe almost free uh, for many, many decades, even for a whole century. Mm-hmm. Uh, they burn coal, they burn oil, including the United States nowadays, per capita consumption of oil by the, uh, by the American is still the highest uh, you know, in the world. Uh, you know, the, the the United States has been very famous of large trucks, large cars, highly polluting cars without much effort mm. to increase the, uh, the electricity, uh, electricity uh, vehicles. In contrast, China has been aware 
of the, the increasing use of uh, vehicles as a major source of carbon emissions. So China has invested heavily in the new energy vehicle sector. Not only the, the penetration rate is the highest in the world, but China is now exporting the largest number of uh, new uh, electricity cars to the rest of the world. You know, uh, it account more than half of the total international uh, you know, output of electrical uh, vehicles. Now, this is uh, only happened over the last few years. And the United States, United Kingdom, Europe, they take hundreds of years not to reach anything as magnificent as what China is doing. So uh, there are some sort of uh, global uh, social responsibility, which is uh, the, the developed countries have to take more responsibility for the past emissions that have been being accumulating to the energy. Mm-hmm. And also the technology, the rich countries, they are more advanced in developing technology. You look at the kinds of, uh, you know, trade war and also the technological uh, sabotage against the emerging economy by some of the most in, important, uh, you know, rich countries, such as the United States, is extremely detrimental for the global development process, including technology to contain emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor, speaking of developing countries still lack enough economic and technological strength, many developing countries urged developed countries, the rich countries, to take seriously about their capabilities and responsibilities and obligations in climate response and deliver their commitment to developing nations. To what extent has developed countries lived up to their commitments today? Well, I think uh, it's very limited, to to be honest, because uh, uh, some of the rich countries, they are pretty, you know, know, protective of their own interests and dominance in terms of gaining abnormal uh, profitability through the technology. So there are limited efforts of technological transfer, uh, land diffusion uh, to the poor countries. So the poor country is suffering from not only from poverty, from lack of industrialization, but also from the lack of technology to improve the climate uh, environment, uh, such as India, for example, Mexico, uh, and also many countries in Africa, they are emerging. Uh, as, as the developing countries, they don't have much technology to really exploiting the new energy sources, such as solar power, such as hydropower, uh, and also wind power, uh, let alone nuclear power. So um, uh, this is one thing. The other thing uh, is the blockage of technological transfer or the, the so-called uh, under the name of intellectual property rights to protect the, the intellectual related to the climate change, which is, uh, to some extent, is, is pretty unacceptable as far as the global climate government is concerned. So there are lots of uh, things that the, the, the Earth countries have to take more proactive action. Firstly, mm-hmm. they have to share more responsibility by implementing uh, you know, environmental conservative technology and consumption habits for their consumers. And secondly, they have to help the developed countries in terms of technological development and uh, you know, exploiting the, the use of new technology, renewable energy, uh, in a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Professor, we've witnessed recently extreme weather events such as the heavy rainfall in Beijing and uh, record high temperature globally having on the rise. So how do you think international cooperation can effectively address these challenges of climate change amidst different stances and geopolitical issues? Yeah, international cooperation to address the climate change issue is so urgent. So, so urgent. But, um, you know, the, the global uh, you know, negotiation or discussion panels like the, the Paris uh, uh, you know, Climate Summit uh, and also the Argentina 
you know, discussion now, recently discussing in India. It referred the fragmentation among the major economy uh, about their share responsibility, their willingness to cooperate to address the urgent issues. I think the the current uh, in extreme weather here and there, including you mentioned the event in Beijing as well as the uh, temperature rises in every part of the world. This actually is an indication for human beings. If things are not done urgently, I think the, all the human beings will suffer. So uh, not only investment by individual member states, but also cooperation by all the countries is uh, really uh, imperative. Uh, we shouldn't wait until the temperature is rising so high that mm-hmm. we cannot have uh, a proper place to live. Indeed. Thank you very much, Professor Yao, for sharing your insights on China's efforts in climate change and the urgency of international cooperation. That's Professor Yao Shujie from Chongqing University. Stay tuned for more engaging discussion on World Today. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. You are listening to Road Today. Chinese firms continue to dominate the Fortune Global 500 list for the fifth consecutive year, with 142 companies making the cut. Walmart maintains its top spot, followed by Saudi Aramco. China's state grade, China National Petroleum and Sinopec are among the top 10. Nine Chinese automakers are also made the list. The 500 companies collectively generated 41 trillion U.S. dollar in revenue, representing over one-third of global GDP. So to talk more about the list, let's bring in Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. Thanks for joining us, Professor Liu. Thank you. It's a pleasure. First of all, how do you describe the impact of Chinese firms dominating the Fortune Global 500 list for the fifth consecutive year? Well, over the past uh, three years, there has been a very difficult time. And uh, we can see that uh, most of the Chinese firms, particularly those giants, are really uh, demonstrated their strong resilience against some of the headwinds. Uh, produced by the pandemic and by the geopolitical uh, tension and also by the reshaping of global supply chain. So this is a a, a very good news. And another good news is that we do notice there many of the Chinese uh, uh, e-car companies Mm -hmm. uh, are really uh, getting thronged into the Fortune 500 list, uh, which is really very un-euro as compared with the uh, previous uh, listing. So this is uh, uh, something to show that uh, China is really uh, resolved to move on high quality growth. And uh, this is really uh, the one that not only uh, shows high quality growth, but also uh, more of environmentally friendly growth uh, towards the sustainable development of the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. Professor Liu, as you mentioned, it's definitely worth mentioning that when China joined the World Trade Organization back in 2001, no Chinese auto enterprises reached the scale of the least standard. But in this year, there are nine Chinese automakers on the list. Tell us more about this breakthrough in the whole picture. How do you rate the technological innovation capabilities of Chinese automakers today? One is, uh, reason is the uh, Chinese central government is highly resolved to go for the, uh, its target for the carbon peaking and carbon uh, neutrality. And this is uh, really a, quite an impetus. Uh, it's not only uh, in terms of the political drive, but also in terms of financial support uh, from the uh, different levels of government to support the uh, the new energy vehicles, and uh, uh, the other is that uh, the technology dispersion 
uh, is uh, uh, something that is uh, really there to penetrate into the Chinese automakers. And plus, that uh, they are also very much resolved uh, to go for their own innovation and also the technological improvements. And uh, we can see that uh, the uh, expenditure over the R&D for the electronic vehicles are really uh, on the surge. So uh, the uh, many of those funds and uh, big investors are also uh, looking very favorably uh, towards this uh, particular sector. So hence, uh, there is uh, a, a quite a much of the drive. And uh, lastly, I think it is also the market driven because the government gave uh, more of the flexible quotas for uh, people and households to win the lottery into the uh, e-vehicles. So therefore, uh, the uh, companies are really motivated to produce more and also to increase the uh, quality uh, in order to engage in such a competition for the lion's share of the Chinese consumer market. Mm-hmm. Professor, could you please elaborate more on Chinese policy? What policies or business practices in general have contributed to the success of Chinese company on the global stage? Uh, one reason is that uh, uh, China uh, still have a very integrated policy towards the industrial mapping and uh, over the years, the uh, Chinese government, uh, particularly represented by the uh, National uh, Development the Commission, the uh, Development and Planning Commission, and they are uh, you know, introducing not only policies to uh, boost the uh, new industrial sector for the Chinese economy, but also to uh, the issue a whole uh, basket of attractiveness to uh, encourage more of the foreign participation into the Chinese market, which is used to be uh, highly restricted. And that is uh, something that uh, contributes to such a successful result. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, also that uh, we can see that on the consumer end, the uh, Chinese consumers are getting severe and uh, they will also take the uh, good quality, uh, which uh, really uh, more of the price worthy. And so the, uh, with the information dissemination across the Internet, across the uh, WeChat, and people share those information. So it is really uh, the uh, market that is driving them to move forward. And plus that we can see that uh, the uh, Chinese expenditure is uh, not only uh, over the technological innovation, but also uh, is there to support the Chinese vocational schools and uh, to boost the uh, industrial engineering major. And this uh, is there to uh, prepare a larger talent pool to join the workforce uh, into the uh, uh, many of those uh, the frontier uh, industries. So these are really a combined effort that are able to produce a successful result despite of all the turbulences of the global economy. Then, Professor, how do you view uh, these policies and business practices of, from China compared to those of other major economies? Well, uh, actually, uh, we do notice such a uh, strong trend of a convergence. Yes, the Chinese government is still uh, supporting uh, those big companies, particularly the state-owned companies, but uh, we are also... Uh, pretty much resolved, uh, particularly since the beginning of this year, uh, to support the private enterprises to let the market or the individual for hand to play a more important role. And uh, uh, foreign giants, uh, they are also very savvy in uh, catching up uh, the new market opportunities. They have uh, less government guidance or interference and uh, and has also support, but uh, uh, because of the uh, uh, competitive advantage they accumulate, they are able also to leverage uh, into the Chinese market. Indeed, thank you very much, Professor Liu. This is World Today. We'll be back. Hello, everyone. This is Zun Ahmed Khan, currently based in Tsinghua University. World Today is an excellent initiative to discuss current affairs by including experts from across the globe. I've always enjoyed our thought-provoking discussions and wish the team even more success and impact in the future.
Welcome back to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. U.S.-based semiconductor manufacturer AMD says it plans to develop an AI chip specifically for the Chinese market to comply with U.S. export curbs. CEO of AMD Lisa Su said China is an important market to the company. But due to the U.S. government's ban on AI chip sales to China, AMD plans to follow the lead of its rivals Nvidia and Intel and develop AI chips with reduced capabilities to ship to China. Data shows China contributed 5.2 billion U.S. dollar in revenue for AMD last year, accounting for 22 percent of its total revenue. So for more on this, my colleague Xu Yawen spoke with Mike Basting, senior lecturer at Southampton Solent University in the UK. What do you think of AMD's recent announcement that it still wants to do business with China despite U.S. government's export restrictions on AI chips? Well, it's it's not a surprise that they're following uh, key competitors. So you've got Nvidia and Intel. Nvidia, who who have modified one of their chips for the China market. So、uh, I think it's a definite、um, decision that really highlights the importance of the China market to AMD and others. And in fact, they've gone public and said that that China is a real market opportunity, and they want to be fully competitive in that market. But at the same time, adhering to These export controls imposed by the U.S. government recently. The U.S. government aims to restrict chip sales to China, but U.S. chip makers seem to disagree with their government, as China remains a very important market for them. So, given all that information, will the ban work as Biden administration wishes? I'm not so sure that export controls generally work in in the, in the long term, even in the short term. So, as, as we've seen. With Nvidia, they've simply modified their H100 chip、uh, and quite comfortably comply with the export controls. So there's definite intent there where the chip, U.S. chipmakers are concerned, and it appears to be fairly straightforward to sort of get around any export controls. Now, the Biden government may impose more controls. Who knows? They may extend this to these modified chips. As well, but I suspect the chipmakers will find loopholes and, and will get round that. And ultimately, there, there could be a decision that they invest、uh, directly, direct investment in the China market or outside of the U.S. to、uh, completely get 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 out of the sort of the control of the U.S. government. So I, I'm not optimistic that these export controls will work, and I think they were very, very hastily put together and not really thought through at all. Actually, last month the CEOs of Intel, Nvidia, and Qualcomm traveled to Washington to hold talks with U.S. officials, lobbying President Biden to abandon chip export restrictions. The companies believe that cutting ties with their largest markets, which is China, would hinder their ability to invest in advancing technology and ultimately undermine U.S. leadership in the industry. So. Do you think that the U.S. government hasn't really considered these potential consequences? Are they not aware that this action could potentially harm America's leadership? I I think I think that's a very very valid point. I don't think they have thought this through. Obviously, if you restrict、uh, companies from exporting to what are key markets, growth markets, then That jeopardizes the whole company, the whole company, the whole company's culture of innovation,、uh, striving for growth, becoming more and more competitive in, in what is a very, very competitive. The semiconductor industry is extremely competitive, and obviously, it's an industry that is strategic and, and one very much for the, the future. So,、uh, again, I think the U.S. government has to look very, very carefully at this and talk to their. Their, their, their chip makers, so, so talk to the likes of Intel, obviously AMD, and others. Get round the table and、mm-hmm. see what is a better approach for everybody. And, and, and most definitely, curbing exports to China will affect the U.S. market and will affect their their competitiveness in America and elsewhere. So I think this is a, another issue where governments,、uh, and particularly the U.S. government, meddling in industry are. Really, not helping anyone, not helping so, anyone at all. As you said,、yep. if they're fully aware of that, if they're thinking it over, so why would the U.S. government and Biden administration persist with such restrictions? 
it's hard to say. You'd think they should they should be more aware, and they should be in in uh, regular consultation with the U.S. chip makers themselves, certainly the leadership. But apparently, it, it may well be there's some detachment. It may well be that they feel the short-term political gain by appearing to stand up for America to the American public and and curbing export controls on what what they want to sort of portray as a threat from China and elsewhere. So so it may be short-term political considerations. I think that's the only thing I could think of. And they they may feel that their administration benefits politically from uh, sort of standing up for America. But but in effect, if you look at it quite closely, or not that closely, you see very quickly that what they're doing will actually damage American interests and damage the American market as well. So I think short-term political gains probably behind it. Biden administration previously says the reason why they rolled out this cheap ban is to protect U.S. national interests. Mm. But now it seems like it's hurting the U.S. Uh, dominance, That's right. the industry of the AI chip making. So do you consider this this action violate the principles of a free market, of a market economy, and international economic and trade rules? I think most definitely. I think there's a very, very important point here that um, the international business community really need to look at this very, very carefully, and it really could be, and hopefully isn't, the start of a real backward move where we see more protectionism, more export controls, so we're coming away from liberalization of trade, free trade, free trade agreements from which everybody's benefited over many, many years. So I think it does violate these core international business principles from which the whole world economy really depends and thrives. And once again, it appears to be a false argument that they're really protecting national national interests. You can't really protect. You're not doing anyone any, any good if you, if you protect a company that is not performing that well, really that the market and market forces will determine, will create a much better business platform for everybody. So, so I, think, I think that, that the, there is a real serious point here. And this is coming from the, the Democrats, the Republicans tend to be more extreme. So it, um, it, it needs to be addressed. And lastly, Mike, in the long term, if we look at this in a bigger picture, could the U.S. chip ban on China potentially serve as a motivation or encouragement for China and Chinese companies to accelerate their efforts in AI chip manufacturing and the development of the entire ecosystem? I think it will, and I think we'll see the emergence of very competitive Chinese brands and chip maker brands very, very soon, as we have seen the emergence of sort of Chinese technology uh, industry that, that's now going global, uh, that, that's happened in a very short space of time. So yeah, I think there will be encouragement, there will be motivation. And I also think that the, the American presence in the China market will act as a motivator as well. Uh, and they'll be looking for partnerships uh, and alliances. So I, I think in the long term, the, the actual emergence of the Chinese chip maker industry and related industry is inevitable. And I think this will only spur it on. And, and it won't surprise me that in a year from now, or maybe even sooner, we'll be talking about very competitive Chinese brands, which uh, which will also be, again, a very, very good thing for competition and a better, more innovative, more competitive market from which everyone gains. That was Mike Basting, senior lecturer at Southampton Solent University in the UK. This is Road Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. 
You're listening to Road Today. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted by the Justice Department in connection with his alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The charges include conspiring to defraud the U.S. by preventing Congress from certifying Joe Biden's victory. This is the third indictment in four months for Trump, who is a favorite for the Republican presidential nomination. So, for more on this, joining us on the line. Is Dr. Edward Lehman, managing director of Lehman Lee and Shu Law Firm. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting me be here. Good to see you, Edward. First of all, could you please back us up on the three charges the former U.S. President Donald Trump is facing now? Sure. I mean, Donald Trump was indicted on felony charges、uh, just this week for working to overturn the election results, like you said, of the 2020 election. In the run-up to、uh, a violent riot、uh, by his supporters in the U.S. Capitol on、uh, January the sixth,、uh, with the Justice Department at, is now acting to hold him accountable、mm-hmm. for an unprecedented effort to to block the peaceful tran what they say the peaceful transfer of the presidential power and threaten the American democracy. So that's that's the indictment,、um, and you know those are serious. It's、uh, as, as you said, it's the third criminal case against Mr. Trump. In these last、uh, four ye-、uh, months, and it's provided a kind of a deeper insight into a dark moment that has already been the subject of an exhaustive federal investigation, and it's、uh, you know captivating public hearings. So it, it,、uh, the American public has been、uh, has been gripped by this,、uh, um, and it chronicles kind of a months-long campaign of lies、um, that are purported lies in the election results.、Um, You know that have been saying that there are falsehoods、uh, resulting in a chaotic insurrection、mm-hmm. at the Capitol on January sixth.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Trump had already made history, as you mentioned, by becoming the first former、uh, U.S. president to be criminally prosecuted at the federal and state levels. But some experts warn that the third one, the this one, against him are the most damaging legally and politically. What might be the damage they are referring to? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, we've got to keep in mind that everyone is innocent until proven guilty in in the、yes. United States, as is Mr. Trump.、Uh, are these damaging? the The answer is yes. I mean,、um, but I think to the uninitiated and those、uh, that are not lawyers,、um, these are conspiracy、uh, theories, which mean that、uh, it's actually、uh, it has to do with talking. So you can、uh, conspire by talking to ha- have something、uh, happen, and so that's a kind of a difficult concept for people to understand. So、mm-hmm. merely talking about the idea that、uh, that the election was、um, tampered with or that the election results were not correct, which is what is allowed under freedom of speech, which is the First Amendment. Certainly, Hillary Clinton、uh, and and many other people after Mr.、Uh, Trump was elected. Said the exact same words、uh, that this uh, election was uh, was not legitimate,、um, and is it sort of a double standard? I think people need to understand that the、uh, these indictments that come out of、uh, the District of Columbia, Washington D.C., which is a、uh, special place in the United States, but about five percent of the voters in the District of Columbia voted for Mr. Trump, ninety-five percent against him. And、uh, the Department of Justice there, you know, sort of has things、uh, stacked, and I'm not sure they can get a jury of his peers, Mr. Trump's peers, to be able to see clear on this. So, is this heavily,、uh, you know, is this are these serious charges? Absolutely,、um, you know, and and are they the most serious so far? Absolutely, they are. But they have to do with talking, and、mm-hmm. whether one can talk about the idea of an election not being valid. And whether that's enough for to to initiate that there was some kind of、uh, bad act or a criminal act in order to have folks、uh, come onto the Capitol on, on January sixth, so that's what that means. And I mean, people have had problems, not with just Mr. Trump, but with, with this idea of conspiracy.、Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the International Workers' Day, which is、uh, is an incident that happened on May first, eighteen eighty six, in Chicago, the A、uh, Market Square riot. Was about conspiracy. People were talking about having a meeting there, and then there were people who subsequently died in, in a demonstration, and those people were sentenced to death、uh, because they had 
had talked or encouraged people to go down there and meet. They actually didn't throw bombs. They didn't do anything, but they conspired or talked about it. So this idea is very, it's difficult because it's not, is the nexus close enough to talk about these things? And are you entitled to freedom of speech and of your opinion on these things? Mm -hmm. It's a fine line and it'll have to be adjudicated. Mm-hmm. We know Trump has denied any wrongdoing in the previous indictments, calling them politically motivated. How might his defense strategy differ for this case, given its unique nature and gravity? Well, I think, I mean, his lawyers are going to be, they've got their uh, work cut out for them. There's no doubt about it. Can they get a fair trial in the District of Columbia? They're probably doubtful. Will they be, could they be may, maybe move it to Virginia? And for those who are familiar with the District of Columbia, it is a very small place. It's uh, 10 miles by 10 miles approximately. And uh, either side is, one side is Virginia, the other side is Maryland. And more than likely, it would be better for his defense lawyers to be able to move it to another location. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think that uh, he's also going to have to uh, overcome a lot of the baked-in prejudices that are in the indictment. Uh, which which talk about conspiracy, but I think in in his uh, in the plus column or in the positive column, he can rely upon freedom of speech and be and freedom of expression. And then there's a question about whether, like I said, there's a nexus between those words and actual actions. So mm-hmm. it's this idea of can you yell fire when there is no fire in a crowded theater? That would be a nexus to harm people if they're uh, creating a panic. And so then the question is, was were those words enough uh, to to cause some kind of damage um, on January 6th there? So I, I think that, you know, do I think that these charges are going to hang over his head for a long time? The answer is yes. Are they going to get resolved quickly? No. Is it going to, you know, um, and is it, do the, does the defense uh, attorneys, do they have their hands full with being able to come up with a, a plausible defense? Um, yes, they do. Mm-hmm. Then, despite facing legal challenges, Trump remains the Republican frontrunner for the 2024 presidential nomination with a significant lead in the polls. From a political standpoint, how do you see this case potentially impacting Trump's support base and undecided voters? Yeah, I think it's 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 definitely solidified his base. It, it actually uh, those people were on the fence. Um, I think with regards to Mr. Trump, who you know is a very opinionated person, he's a very smart person, and and uh, he has a tendency to to uh, you know to bring people down to their nicknames and say things kind of in a glib way. It's not always accepted by the the general public as to the way that he behaves. But um, what this has done is people like Merrick Garland, people like the, defense, the, the Department of Justice, have actually wound up uh, solidifying his base. And then people who are on the fence about whether to support him or not, I believe it, it's actually made it stronger for them to jump in and support Mr. Trump. I think that what the average American looks at, uh, at least a, a good majority of them, is that if this can happen to a multi-billionaire who was the president of the United States, could something like this, my freedom of speech, my discussion, can it be used against me as an average person mm-hmm. when I'm not a billionaire, when I'm just an average person? And so I think that there's a lot, of the, you know, with a, with a big group of Americans, there's a lot of empathy and there's a lot of support. And so this is actually kind of backfiring, I think, in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and as a result, like you said, he is the uh, front runner, and I, I don't see that that abating. And I think that the more indictments that he gets, the bigger uh, support he's getting from his base, which is pretty big. And uh, the question is whether it's going to be enough to get him elected. Edward, one last question. One concern raised is the uh, possibility of electing a president with pending criminal charges. Are there any legal restrictions in the United States preventing someone from running for for the presidency while facing indictments? You know, that, that's a great question. And, you know, America's got a relatively short history compared to China. But we uh, we had a fellow in the 1920s, a guy called Eugene Victor Debs, who actually ran for president, who's a socialist, uh, in, uh, from a prison cell. So, I mean, 
and he was indicted on charges, uh, and and he was able to run. Now, of course, he didn't win back then. I think I think it was Silent Cal Coolidge that, that won that election, but uh, a Republican. But um, there is precedent where where someone who is uh, facing criminal charges. There's another fellow called Lyndon LaRouche, who was a kind of a perennial uh, candidate for president, not from one of the major parties. And uh, he was uh, convicted and, and uh, indicted and convicted with regards to uh, tax evasion, among other things. And he was that did not prohibit him from running. Now, neither of them, uh, Mr. Debs or, or uh, Lyndon LaRouche, uh, you know, won an election or even came close to winning the election. But there is some precedent. Um, and I you know, I don't think that that will prohibit him mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, from standing for office or taking office. Now, they once he takes office, and we've seen this before, Mr. Trump has been twice, uh, you know, impeached uh, unsuccessfully, of course, I mean, from removal. But uh, maybe maybe they would move to have a third, yet a third in, impeachment. That this one, if he was mm-hmm. elected, uh, might stick because of those things. Hey, thank you very much, Edward, for your time and insights. That's Dr. Edward Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. China's National Cyberspace Administration is considering upgrading the minor mode on mobile internet to enhance online protection for minors. The draft guidelines aim to expand the mode's coverage to include mobile smart terminals and application stores. The upgrade will introduce a unified standard and automatic switching function, providing appropriate content based on user age. Public comments on the draft are open until September the so for more on this, let's have Bai Shen Yue, partner of Grandol Law Firm. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be here. Why do you think an upgrade is needed? What are the prominent changes in the new guidelines compared with the past? Well, this has been a, uh, a highly anticipated move from the regulating authorities on uh, online uh, application. Um, in China over the years, I, there has been a shocking absence of uh, sufficient screening measures mm-hmm. for the protection of minors uh, against uh, many contents that are not really suitable for young people, such as violence, you know, sexually implicit videos or audio products, uh, contents involving hatred, discrimination or abusive scenes, etc. So uh, many people have called for immediate actions to be taken to address this, this appalling really status of online apps, which have far-reaching harmful impact on young people. So uh, this guideline, I think, uh, is uh, quite necessary and it should have been in place uh, earlier than, than uh, it, it really you know, was. Mm-hmm. As you said, there are many challenges. Then how do you think a unified standard for the minor mode will address these concerns and ensure better protection for minors online? Protection schemes, uh, as uh, spelled out in this uh, guideline, are to be extended to all intel- intelligent mobile devices and online uh, app uh, stores or shops, apart from the application itself, which was the case before. The new measure will enable an automatic prompt for a uh, uh, app, uh, online shop, or uh, and apps to switch to a juvenile protection mode uh, once the mobile intelligent device is activated by the users. In that case, that would be the minors. As you mentioned earlier, providing age-appropriate content is essential for protecting minors online. So how will the proposed guidelines ensure that Internet platforms cater to the varying needs of different age groups effectively? Well, this is, of course, the objective of uh, this guideline that is just rolled out or to be rolled out soon. Uh, But, of course, it is not a that easy and uh, the, the result or effect that we would anticipate or, or wish for will definitely take time. It takes much more than a guideline itself to mm-hmm. uh, result in what we would see happening. And it is really a long process and it takes the co-efforts of uh, many stakeholders in the uh, online uh, application industry as well as people, the general public, the parents, the legal guardians of the minors, mm-hmm. and many other organizations and the government authorities and the agencies um, to really uh, work together to 
make sure that the desired effect and uh, will, will, will take place and uh, those harmful contents will be able to be blocked uh, from the miners and provide sufficient protection for those young people. As you brought up, to ensure safer internet access for juveniles, parents' role in keeping their children safe online is more important than app restrictions or any other guidelines. Do you share the same stance? What role do you believe parents should play? Well, to a large extent, I agree, uh, because apparently the technical measures that are to be put into place are always, you know, subject to the uh, collaboration of the willing and well-informed parents uh, or guardians who are responsible and uh, who are well aware of the potential risks that their their, their kids are facing now. Uh, so protection for young people is always tough and offers, uh, you know, offers those young people a healthy and a safe environment is extremely challenging nowadays since they are constantly uh, ubiquitously almost exposed to various online information, videos, movies that are not really intended to be viewed or, or heard or you know, received by those at such a young age. The online applications and video industry is almost a wild west now in China. So many parents are far from awakening to the damages of online applications that are so easily accessible to minors which might bring disasters to their kids without their knowledge. Uh, people are a bit, you know, still excited about the convenience, about the excitement, about the entertainment those applications bring, but um, very few people realize the potential damages and risks those uh, online applications will create, and it will uh, have a, a really damaging uh, effect on this generation and probably the next generation to come. So the ramifications might not be felt until 10, 15 years later. Mm -hmm. So there should be a social campaign now across China to fight against the adverse impact on minors uh, by those uh, online applications in order to educate the parents Mm -hmm. and make it a priority for parents, for the society in general, for the general public to take actions immediately. Indeed. Thanks, Bai Xianyue, partner of Grand All Law Firm. That's all the time for this edition of World Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.